Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. When your ideals are under threat, and when you're grieving the loss of a son, how do you hold on to hope? I'm Dylan Matthews, and I write for Vox about poverty, animal welfare, and the best ways to do philanthropy. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Jamie Raskin is a Democratic congressman from Maryland, and on January 6, 2021, he was enduring an immense personal tragedy. On New Year's Eve, his son Tommy had died by suicide at age 25. Tommy was an acclaimed activist and poet, devoted to progressive causes, and, like me, part of the effective altruism movement, which tries to use rigorous evidence to find the best ways to do good. Less than a week after Tommy's death, Jamie Raskin had to go to the Capitol to count electoral votes and formally elect Joe Biden president. He brought along his daughter Tabitha and his other daughter's husband Hank to witness history being made. They wound up witnessing a darker kind of history being made. All three found themselves sheltering for hours as they endured an unprecedented assault by pro-Trump rioters who broke into the Capitol in an attempt to disrupt the count. The whole Raskin clan made it out without physical harm, but soon Congressman Raskin was appointed lead floor manager for the second impeachment of Donald Trump making him the main prosecutor trying to get justice for the president's involvement in the events of January 6th. Today, he serves on the select committee investigating the attack and the extent of Trump's involvement. Congressman Raskin's new memoir, Unthinkable, recounts his experience of January 6th and its aftermath, and how his late son Tommy's example and ideals helped him through it. We talked about the importance of moral ideals in politics, about Tommy's faith in the Constitution and the rule of law, and about what needs to be done to safeguard those institutions from attacks like last year's. Hello, Congressman Raskin. Hello, Dylan. Delighted to be with you. All right. So we're here to talk about your book, Unthinkable. And the book is about a lot of things. It's about January 6th and the crisis of American democracy. But a lot of it is about your son, about Tommy Raskin and his ideas and legacy. Tell me a bit about Tommy and what he believed and stood for. Well, Tommy was an absolute joy from, you know, the youngest of ages. I was thinking of a story about him that is not in the book, but he went down to the Supreme Court with a tenant of ours who was clerking on the Supreme Court for Justice Stevens. Our friend Allie is now a federal judge, but in those days she was clerking for Justice Stevens and they were going down and Tommy was just, I think, six years old, maybe seven. And she was telling him about Justice Stevens on the way down. And then Tommy said, well, what about his dissenting position in Texas versus Johnson? which was the case about flag desecration, you know, where Justice Scalia joined the liberals and saying, you can't put somebody in jail for the thought crime of mistreating the flag. And she was a little taken aback, but she said, well, Justice Stevens, you know, said that desecrating a flag is like putting graffiti on the Lincoln Memorial. And Tommy said, well, we only have one Lincoln Memorial, but everybody can have their own flag. And so let them do with it what they want to do, you know. And so she, anyway, Allie always told that story about Tommy. I mean, he was an amazing kid. Uh, He had a brilliant mind and he had a perfect heart. He loved people. He loved animals. And 
He got involved towards the end of his life in this movement of effective altruism, which is all based on the idea of doing the most good for the most number of people. And he wanted to increase human flourishing and happiness and reduce the suffering of people and of animals. I, re I remember when, when Tommy passed away, you and, and your wife, Sarah, wrote a, a really beautiful remembrance and, and shared the last request that Tommy made. Do you mind sharing that with us and what you took it to mean? Well, he, he wrote us um, a farewell note, which was found later in the day on December 31st, 2020, when we lost him. And it said, please forgive me my illness one today. Look after each other the animals and the global poor for me. All my love, Tommy. It's a beautiful, it's a heartbreaking request and a beautiful one in some ways. Singling out the, the global poor and, and animals was really striking to me. Can you tell me a bit about what those causes meant to Tommy and, and how he came to them? Well, Tommy really kept his eye on the lowest levels of the Maslow hierarchy of need. I mean, he really was very in touch with people who were fleeing from war and violence and plague and people who didn't have housing and people who didn't have food. And he wanted the government to be an instrument of promoting the general welfare for people here and uplifting people in other countries fighting for human rights and dignity and justice. So. This is a credo we live by, and the global poor, of course, includes the poor in America and all over the world. And Tommy was someone who believed fiercely in the Constitution and constitutional democracy, but I remember when he showed me that great passage from Tom Paine, who's one of my heroes, where Paine said, when there are no more paupers and no more beggars, then you can brag about your Constitution. Um, the Constitution was never in his mind something to be fetishized and celebrated without regard to what its effect is in the world. He wanted a constitution that was going to be in service of humanity. One thing that really comes through in the book is how much Tommy and, and each of your children, Hannah Grace and Tabitha as well, how much you and Sarah treated them as sort of intellectual partners and people you learned from as much as taught. Tell me a bit about what Tommy taught you over the course of his life. Are there things he changed your mind about or, or challenged you about? Well, Tommy, I described him as my greatest student and then my greatest teacher. I mean, he really did change the way I looked at almost everything. I mean, Tommy was a very strong anti-war person, and he saw the ways in which governments would get their people into wars for selfish reasons and based on lies. And so when Donald Trump got elected and people were saying immediately, this is the worst president we ever had. I mean, Tommy took them to task for historical amnesia. And he said, you only have to go back to George W. Bush to find a president who took us to war based on lies and ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people and devastating the Iraqi society. So Tommy, he wanted to figure out a way to make war part of the ancient history of our species, like witchcraft trials, just barbaric things like slavery. But he wanted war to be like that, and he wanted hunger to be like that. You know, the book Unthinkable obviously describes our reaction to losing Tommy because, I mean, it's just... Even to this day, it's impossible to conceive of life in a future without him, you know. And it also describes what took place on January 6th, this violent assault on the Republic, this insurrection against the Congress, this attempted political coup against the vice president, this attempt to seize the presidency. But Unthinkable also describes in a positive way many of the dreams that Tommy had and many of the values that he thought humanity could aspire to, but he just felt the pain of the world too much and was struggling with mental illness, with depression. 
I wanted to, to ask a bit about his experience and perhaps yours with depression and grief. Obviously, it's an illness. It has biological roots. But one thing I've noticed as a reporter and as someone with a lot of friends in activism, in the nonprofit world, in the effective altruist community that Tommy was a member of, is that there does seem to be a more prominent issue with depression. And I think for some people, sort of staring at the suffering of the world straight ahead can be an incredibly overwhelming experience and also feeling that it's your responsibility and duty to do something about that makes it all the more overwhelming. Was that your sense of something Tommy struggled with? And is that something you've struggled with yourself? Well, I've never experienced depression myself, so much of it is inscrutable to me and a mystery. I've tried to research whatever I could about it. I mean, one of the puzzles is the one that you touch on there, which is, you know, why so many people with vast reservoirs of compassion and empathy and human solidarity also struggle with depression. And I don't know whether it's the openness to the world that leads to depression or I don't know whether it is people's organic connection to sadness and suffering that opens them up to what's going on in civil war zones and with refugees. And I don't know what the causal relationship is. I wish that I did. You're not the first person to have observed that to me. But I will tell you that Tommy, I think, did distinguish between his political and moral passions and what he understood was a disease. And he had medication and he was seeing a doctor. And, you know, I don't think he saw any nobility in depression. I think that he tried to do whatever he could to get rid of it. And it just became overwhelming and insufferable for him. But it is also true, as you suggest, that you know, the difficulty of our circumstances with COVID-19 and the isolation and demoralization of so many young people and all of the political tension and hostility, all of those things, I think, did further erode his spirits and make it more difficult for him. Yeah, that's an important reminder. I've, I've dealt with depression and suicidal ideation myself, and there have been moments when I changed pills and suddenly was much happier, much sadder. And it did not change how unjust I thought the world was. And remembering that this is a real sort of biological illness seems is one point that you really drive home in the book and strikes me as very important. Yeah, I mean, and we are talking about something that, I don't know, 70 or 80 million Americans are struggling with. And so we hope that we will continue to make every possible scientific breakthrough and progress. And at the same time, change the social context so that Life is better for everybody, including people who are struggling with a diagnosis like this. Yeah. I think when I was reading a lot of the book, in some ways it feels like a book about idealism, that you have a very strident progressive record, both as a scholar and as a politician. Tommy had dreams for abolishing global poverty and animal welfare that I find deeply admirable, but, but very hard to achieve. It reminded me of the quote from Max Weber that only he has the calling for politics who is sure he will not crumble when the world from his point of view is too stupid or too base for what he wants to offer. And one thing that came across through the book is, is you and him not crumbling, that a lot of the book is about your attempt to convict Donald Trump in the face of a huge Republican backlash to the impeachment effort and pushing forward even when you fell short in the Senate. You talk a lot about fighting for marriage equality in Maryland and, and trying to get people on board. It seems like Tommy struggled with that gap between where the world needed to be and where it was a lot as well. How did he affect how you think about that and trying to bridge that gap? And, and how do you yourself sort of cope with that gap and find the strength to keep going in, in the face of setbacks? Well, the great thing about Tommy was that he loved debate and dialogue. I mean, he... He loved Christopher Hitchens as a debater, if not as necessarily a political thinker, at least <laughs> on war and stuff like that. So Tommy was not some kind of, you know, prissy liberal <laughs> purist in any way. I mean, he wanted to mix it up and he wanted to hear about other people's views and he'd be willing to change his views. But fundamentally, you're absolutely right that he had his moral convictions that Everybody deserves a life of decency and integrity and a modicum of security. 
And he was willing to fight for that. And he was willing to fight for people's freedom, too. You know, he had very strong libertarian instincts as well and spent some time as a summer intern at the Cato Institute working with Doug Bandau. He was a free thinker. He thought for himself, you know, and he wanted to advance the cause of human freedom and the cause of human welfare at the same time. And those two don't often go together, you know. Oftentimes we have libertarians who strike a pose like they don't care about poverty. And we have people who are interested in addressing poverty who don't seem to talk about civil freedoms and rights and liberties. But for Tommy, he wanted the whole package for humanity. Well, and it does seem like the sort of great debater side of Tommy came through in the parts of the book where you're working on the impeachment trial of Trump. So just to situate people, this is after January 6th, the second impeachment trial. You were the floor manager for the prosecution in the Senate. And throughout the book, as you're describing this, you, you keep thinking back to Tommy and, and how he would conduct a debate and his sort of presence and performance as a debater and poet. How did he influence how you went about that prosecution? In the immediate aftermath of this huge tragedy, how did he affect your ability to do that? Well, yeah, I kept referring back to Tommy because he always wanted to refer only to people's best arguments and the arguments that had merit and integrity and not go off on all the wild goose chases and the red herrings. And that position has both moral integrity to it and then also tactical virtue. I mean, the moral integrity is, you know, you're not going to get dragged into the mud with people at an ad hominem level and drag everybody's discourse downward. But at the same time, it's tactically effective because the stuff that is self-defeating or self-deflating is just left to the side. And then you say, okay, well, here's something serious that you raised and here's how I want to address it. So you're always taking the best points in the other person's argument. I remember Tommy once told me that his favorite thing to do was to restate or reformulate the other guy's argument in a way that was more compelling than had been raised originally and then knock it down. So <laughs> it gives you a sense of kind of the uplifting nature of his approach to rhetoric. And so how does that affect when you're um, you're on the Senate floor and you're dealing with Donald Trump's lawyers who are making often quite incoherent arguments about sort of not being able to impeach someone who's no longer in office when that's happened several times in U.S. history. How do you try to sort of steel man or confront the strongest version of your opponent's argument when you're kind of dealing with often nonsense? Well, th that's a great question. And, you know, th there are a lot of different things in this book. And one is an interest in public language today, public rhetoric. And I mean, you could say my most Tommy Raskin moment at the trial was when, you know, we had delivered what we thought was a really devastating refutation of the argument that the Senate couldn't even sit on the trial because Donald Trump had left office. And that was ridiculous as a matter of constitutional text and structure and Senate precedent and common sense. It just made no sense. And the Senate ended up rejecting it. But we went through all of this, and then we were on the edge of our seat to see what Trump's lawyers would say, but it was almost as if they were hearing the argument for the first time and had nothing prepared. I mean, they didn't even understand the pretty frivolous and superficial arguments that had been advanced in their written briefs. Um, and then one of the lawyers got up and then just started talking about Philadelphia and you know, TV shows and how great it is to be a senator and how much <laughs> he loves the Senate. Philadelphia, as he said it. <laughs> Philadelphia, Philadelphia. These depositions should be done in person, in my office, in Philadelphia. That's where they should be done. So, but in any event, we had finished with 23 minutes left over and Senator Leahy turned back to me after this just outrageously embarrassing <laughs> tirade was over. And he said, the House of Representatives has 23 minutes more. And I had written down about 50 things that I wanted to take issue with, but I realized it was such a pitiful parade that they had just put on that I could just retire. And I got up and I said, the House has no further arguments. We're trying to pursue this in a bipartisan way. And nothing is more bipartisan than the 
the urge to recess. So we're going to let the Senate go. You know, and yeah. I think Tommy would have liked that and he would have done something like that. But there were other moments. I mean, there was a time when one of the lawyers, you know, in a fit of pique, talked about how upset he was about this or that and said, this is the worst day I've ever spent in Washington. And I've spent a lot of days in Washington. And I simply said, well, I'm really sorry that we had to disappoint you, but you should have been here on January 6th. And that was a very Tommy moment because... um he would have insights like that, and they would just be showstoppers. You know? <laughs> yeah, he gets a lot of great one-liners in the book. I love his line when you're you're running for state senate, and someone says, you know, this person and that person are against you running in the primary, so you're doomed. And he said, well, those are two votes. There's a few hundred thousand more. <laughs> right. I quoted Tommy all the time on that. I mean, they'd say, you can't beat the machine. It would, then we'd say, well, who is the machine? And they would name three or four people. And Tommy said, well, that's just three or four people. Aren't there 175,000 people who live in our district, you know? Um, and that, that's a, a great lesson in one person, one vote democracy. Over the last four years, Jamie Raskin has seen those lessons, those ideals of American democracy, undermined and compromised. So as a former professor of constitutional law, as a current lawmaker a person who has devoted his career to the notion that the American government can achieve real good, has Raskin's faith in the system been shaken? I'll ask him after a quick break. You mentioned this before, and it comes through in the book that Tommy really believed in American constitutional democracy. He was in law school, aiming for, it sounded like, a career in public interest law. You yourself spent your career as a law professor, lawmaker. You were a prosecutor last year. And the book just sort of brims with faith in law as a system and as a tool to prevent tyranny and corruption. And I wanted to ask about that because, frankly, I my faith in the law and in courts has been shaken in recent years that I think looking at people like Bill Barr, uh, Trump's attorney general, and his attempt to sort of bend the Justice Department to partisan ends, someone like John Eastman, who helped plan the January 6th coup, it feels a lot like war by other means. And while the impeachment was impressive, and I, one benefit of reading the book was I had, I had forgotten how many Republicans you did win over, it wasn't enough to bar him from office. And right now you're dealing with people like Steve Bannon dodging subpoenas from you and your colleagues. But you still have this faith that law can be a force for good, and you still seem to believe very deeply in that. Tell me about why and, and how you keep the faith in light of some of the events of recent years. You know, losing your faith in the law is like losing your faith in literature or losing your faith in poetry. You know, it's all what you bring to the task. And undoubtedly, somebody like William Barr will test your faith in the law, just like somebody like Donald Trump will test your faith in government or business or anything else he touches. <laughs> but my point is that the rule of law historically has been the way that people in a democracy control the rulers. That's how we control people in government. That's what the separation of powers is about. That's what the Bill of Rights is about. It's all about making sure that we don't get dictators and tyrants and despots and people who come in and abuse the rights and liberties of the people and frustrate the needs and the will and the agenda of the majority. So... You know, my, my dad used to say to us, and I told this to Tommy and Tabitha and Hannah, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. So the question is what you're going to do with it. And I just think that we cannot abandon the Constitution and the law. And there are a lot of people who are much more powerful counterexamples to William Barr than there are William Barrs out there. I mean, Look at my colleague who was my student once, Stacey Plaskett, who was one of the impeachment managers, and the way that she has let the law guide her career, her belief in equal rights for everybody and using the law as an instrument for social uplift, but also making sure that people don't get away with murder when it comes to either murder or trying to destroy our democracy. Look at Liz Cheney. 
And I disagree with Liz Cheney on still probably 90 or 95 percent of the stuff. But Liz Cheney is a constitutional patriot. She's someone who shows all of us we've got to put the constitutional framework itself above our own party allegiance and above our own political ambitions. I mean, that's a pretty beautiful thing. So there are people like that who can renew your faith in what the law can do if we all get engaged with it. And, you know, the the reason why it's so organically connected to mental health and physical health is that if you're in a dictatorship, it doesn't make any difference how healthy the population is because all that matters is the people at the top. They have 500 lawyers like Donald Trump did when he gave himself COVID-19 and became a super spreader, right? I mean, he's got all the health care he needs. But in a democracy, you need health care for everybody and you need mental health care for everybody, especially if you've got sinister leaders who are out there spreading lies and propaganda and conspiracy theories that undermine everybody's mental health. Absolutely. And allowing a pandemic to spread early on in ways that, as you detail, threaten mental health really profoundly. Donald Trump plunged us into the realm of being a failed state. A failed state is a state that cannot deliver the basic goods of existence to the people, including security against disease and plague. And he basically disarmed us against COVID-19 with the constant lying, with the magical thinking, this will all disappear by Easter, by covering up for the Chinese government, 19 different occasions, defending General Xi and how what a great job they were doing, and on and on and on. All of it endangered us. Donald Trump's own COVID-19 czar, Deborah Burks, said we unnecessarily lost hundreds of thousands of people because of all of the chaos and mismanagement and misdirection of the Trump administration. I wanted to get back to January 6th. There are too many Trump-era scandals to <laughs> to go through completely, but a lot of what's helpful in the book is you do a very nice job of collating a lot of news that's come out about January 6th and how it was planned and what happened that day and synthesize it in a way that makes it very clear that this was an organized attempt by Trump to overturn the election results. But you're also still learning a lot about January 6th. You're a member of the select committee that's been investigating it. I know you can't say everything about what the committee has been looking at, but tell me a bit about how your views on January 6th have evolved since the event, since writing the book, and in recent weeks as you get more and more information. I see three essential rings of activity that took place on January 6th. The outer ring contained tens of thousands of people who had been drawn to Washington in response to Donald Trump's invitation to come to a wild protest. And in this ring of a massive demonstration, you found lots of people with different motives and different understandings of what was going on. But that ring of the mass demonstration became a mass riot. The next ring in was the ring of the insurrection, as I call it. That was the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, the Aryan Nations, the various militia groups, the QAnon networks, the organized domestic violent extremists, which Trump's own Department of Homeland Security said was the greatest security threat domestically to the people of America. These people had been training for January 6th. Many of them engaged in paramilitary training. They came armed with everything from knives to firearms to the bombs that were left at the DNC and the RNC by somebody to the use of steel poles, metal poles, Confederate battle flags, American flags, Trump flags, and on and on. Every manner of uh, item you can imagine to be used as a weapon. And of course, 150 of our officers ended up wounded, injured, hospitalized with traumatic brain injuries, broken skulls, broken jaws, broken necks, broken vertebrae, you name it, and lots of them suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome right now. But the scariest ring, believe it or not, was the very inner ring, which was the ring of the coup. And it's a curious word to use in the American political lexicon because we don't have a lot of experience with coups. And we think of a coup as something that takes place against a president. This was a coup conducted by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. 
And the whole object here was to overthrow Joe Biden's majority of 306 to 232 in the Electoral College, to lower his total below 270, and then to kick the election into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election under the 12th Amendment. And they tried to do it originally by getting Republican legislatures to throw out pro-Biden majorities and replace them with Trump Electoral College slates, like they did that in Pennsylvania. They were not successful in doing that, or in Wisconsin or Michigan. Then they tried to get election officials like Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, simply to find 11,781 votes, in other words, to commit election fraud. Then when that failed, when Raffensperger wouldn't do it and others in his position would not go along with election fraud as a game plan, then the whole thing was to get Vice President Pence to declare completely new and lawless powers to unilaterally reject Electoral College votes coming from specifically Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, and potentially others too, but to get Biden's total below 270. And at that point, under the 12th Amendment, the contest is thrown immediately into the House of Representatives for a contingent election. Now, you ask, why would Donald Trump want the election to go to the House? Well, in the House, we don't vote one member, one vote in one of these contingent presidential elections. We vote one state, one vote. And after the 2020 congressional elections, the Republicans controlled 27 state delegations. We controlled 22, and Pennsylvania was split down the middle. It was tied. So even uh, if Liz Cheney had defected and not voted for Trump, as I think she would have done, she would have defected, uh, even without Liz Cheney, they still had 26 states. And then they would have run it like the Republican National Convention. I think Kevin McCarthy would have gotten up. They would have you know, yelled out the state votes. They would have declared Donald Trump president. And he likely would have invoked the Insurrection Act, as Michael Flynn, his disgraced former national security advisor, had been urging him to do. And they would have called in the National Guard or other military force to put down the chaos and the insurrection that Trump had unleashed against us. I mean, that's pretty much what they were aiming to do. And it was only through a series of heroic acts by officers like Officer Hodges and Officer Dunn and Eugene Goodman and Officer Michael Fanone and Officer Gunnell and through the courage of Mike Pence to say no and the determination of the members of Congress to go back in and to complete the vote counting process and the reaction of the country against the coup. It was only because of these things that we were able to stop it. But the ultra-right groups considered it a great victory. And they're saying next time they're not going to leave most of their firearms back at the hotel or motel or in the car. They're going to bring them in. And the political scientists will tell you that the single biggest indicator of a successful coup coming is a recently failed coup where they get to scope out the weaknesses in the existing political order. And so it seems like you have a full theory of the case of what happened. What are the big unanswered questions that you're hoping that you can answer through the select committee? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've got lots of questions that I'm still trying to get answered. For example, who were all the key go-betweens uh, in the relationship between Trump's political circle and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the militia groups? Was it Roger Stone? Was it Steve Bannon? Was it a combination? What were those formal channels of communication? And we're beginning to piece it together, but we don't have a complete answer yet. Where did all the money come from for the planes and trains and automobiles and hotels and motels? Was all of it Trump campaign money that was quickly converted over and money they raised? Or were there private donors? We're beginning to find some evidence of different people who put up the money. Uh, what exactly was the role of the social media on Twitter and on Facebook? There were whistleblowers in all those places who were saying, this is very dangerous what's happening. We've got to pay attention. And yet none of the social media entities covered themselves with any kinds of glory in terms of trying to halt the use of their 
private communications technology to organize a violent insurrection against the union. So there are a lot of questions we have. I mean, I was just giving you a sketch of how I'm trying to understand the activity sure. that day, but we have uh, lots of dots to connect. There's no doubt about it. How do you think the progress of the committee has been so far? I've seen some sort of outside consternation that you had an incredibly powerful hearing with police officers who experienced, in some cases, were violently victimized on, on January 6th. But if I'm not mistaken, that was the last public hearing so far. There seems to be a lot happening behind the scenes. So a year after, are you happy with the progress the committee's making? Or do the critics have a point in thinking things could go faster? No, I'm thrilled about the progress we're making as a committee. First of all, it's a truly bipartisan committee. It's the only committee I'm on that has a Democratic chair and a Republican vice chair. We spend no time in partisan polemics and invective. We get right down to business and we are out there to determine precisely what happened, why, and then what are our recommendations for preventing a further attack on American democracy going forward. We were thrilled with that hearing, which was something I pushed for very strongly because at the end of the Senate impeachment trial, my main regret was that we didn't have an occasion to bring on police officers to tell their story. And it wasn't necessary for them to tell their story to indict and try Donald Trump for incitement to insurrection, because that's what the charge was. But I did tell Chairman Thompson on the new committee, this is the very first thing we've got to do so people understand the fundamental importance of this. This was an attack on the union, the Congress, and the election. And our major line of defense was these officers who got beaten very nearly to their deaths by this violent insurrectionary mob, vicious mob. And many of them are still suffering the injuries to this day. So some fraudulent politician who claims to be pro in law enforcement exposes himself only to be for that small number of racist cops who beat up African-Americans. But in terms of real law enforcement, like the people who defended us against that pro-Trump mob, Trump and his supporters are absolutely AWOL and have nothing to say for our law enforcement. So we started with that. The committee has not had further hearings because what we have decided to do is rather than to have hearings that are punctuated by you know several weeks of just other work and research, is to get our research done as much as we can in substantial part and then put on the hearings to tell one complete story. And that, of course, was our strategy also in the Senate impeachment trial. I mean, that was the first thing I said to the managers. This is not going to be a collection of random speeches. We're going to tell the Senate a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end about how a president frustrated and humiliated by his defeat by 7 million votes to Joe Biden set out to try to overthrow the election and incite a violent insurrection against the union. And that we did. And I think that our committee is going to do the same thing, except it's a much bigger job because it's not about the constitutional crimes of one guy. It's about the whole thing. And, you know, people need to remember this important point about the domestic violent extremist groups. Everybody understands how Donald Trump used them for his purposes, but they used him too. Remember back in August of 2017 with their Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, they were able to gather only around 500 people. I mean, they were terrifying as it was, but it was only around 500 people that they were able to assemble. When they got to D.C. on January 6th of 2021, after more than four years of Donald Trump, they had now many more than a thousand, maybe 2,000 people in their own ranks, and they were acting as the stormtrooper vanguard for a rally of 40 or 50,000 people supported by the president of the United States. And they almost knocked over the U.S. government. So long after we're done with Donald Trump and all of his narcissistic fantasies, we're still going to be dealing with this domestic violent extremist movement, which Donald Trump managed to turn into a mass violent fascist street movement, something that America has either never seen or hasn't seen since something like the 1930s. 
that's a pretty impressive achievement for a president. It's striking. And yeah, one one point you make in the book is just that the connection of high-level politics at this point, all the way to the West Wing, to street-level fascist movements is outrageously dangerous. One name that came up a surprising amount in your book was Carl Schmidt. that if Tommy is kind of the moral anchor of the book, his opposite is Schmidt, who was the sort of so-called chief jurist to the Third Reich, had the idea that the sovereign, or Trump in this case, would get to decide on the state of exception to step outside the law and trample on it if that promotes his vision of public good. Yes. Tell me a bit about why you thought that was so relevant for understanding Trump. And- well, Schmidt was running through my mind like all day on January 6th because of that famous phrase where he says, sovereign is he who decides upon the exception. And, you know, our constitution doesn't have an exception for a state of emergency or a state of siege, but they were essentially trying to create one in practice. I mean, that's what Steve Bannon had been talking about all week on his webcast. This is going to go down in a way none of you have suspected. Nobody sees it coming and so on. It was all about creating a state of emergency with this violence run amok, with the Capitol stormed and laid siege to, and then these inside moves to try to defeat Biden's majority in the Electoral College. And amazingly, Mike Pence refused to go along with it. It was one guy who saved us from the success of the coup and the insurrection and possible civil war, you know, because they kept going out there and saying, you know, you're not going to defeat the will of 74 million people. I say, well, you think you're going to defeat the will of 81 million people? (laughs) You know, don't mistake the niceness of liberals with weakness. That's a big mistake. Because we know that our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, prior generations of Americans have fought successfully at every turn to transform and expand and deepen the meanings of American democracy. And we are the heirs to the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the labor movement, the human rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, the environmental movement. And we're not going to lay down and let Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and Michael Flynn and these right-wing authoritarian fascist wannabes destroy everything that we have built in the United States of America, which still remains the greatest multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic constitutional democracy in the world. And we're not going to surrender it to these people. No way. We're not going to let it happen. If January 6th was an attack on American democracy, then members of the Capitol Police were the first line of defense. And of course, January 6th followed the summer of 2020 and the nationwide protests against police violence. So in light of those two stark events, how does Congressman Raskin see the role of law enforcement in America? That's coming up after one last short break. I wanted to ask about ways to to confront fascist street movements or the kind of street violence that you saw in January 6th. One thing that really struck me in the book is that you talk repeatedly about the importance of police, that you repeat for emphasis the line that police are necessary to defend democracy against fascist violence. And at one point, you write about your surprise that police weren't using force as soon as rioters were breaching the Capitol. And at the same time, you write about protesting after George Floyd's murder and fighting against police misconduct. And so it's a really complex issue of how to navigate a role for law enforcement while being aware of some of the deep corruption and injustices in law enforcement. And so I'm I'm just curious how your thinking on that evolved both through the summer of 2020 and through your experience being defended by law enforcement on January 6th. Well, those cops saved our lives. And more importantly, they saved our democracy on that day under brutal medieval conditions with waves and waves of people coming in, smashing them in the head, spraying them with toxic agents, using tear gas against them, throwing fire extinguishers, you name it. All of that hell was taking place there. 
I, I just wish the world would come and meet some of these officers, like Officer Dunn, who's my constituent. He was the one who was called the N-word more than 15 times and yelled in frustration at the end of the day, is this America? What the F, man? Is this America? And that was the question that I asked to the senators at the trial. You know, it's up to you. Is this America? Is this the America we're going to be? Or are we going to be an America that has a place for everybody that respects the rule of law and elections? You know, meet Officer Gunnell. I mean, we're talking about great African-American, Latino, immigrant cops. We're talking about great white cops, too, like Michael Fanon, who wasn't even on duty that day and saw what was happening. And he wasn't even on the Capitol Police Force. He was a Metro Police Department officer in D.C. who came and fought voluntarily for four or five hours and was nearly killed. He had a heart attack. He was tased. There were people shouting, kill him with his own gun. And he begged for his life, saying he had four daughters when he got pulled into the crowd. I mean, these people are heroes of democracy. So I understand, I share people's outrage and anger about police forces and sheriff's departments that have been infected with racism. And obviously, this is an historical problem that historians have identified. There are entire police forces that were set up on a racist basis. There's no doubt about that. But I want to say that the police function is a legitimate function in a sovereign political democracy. And we need strong, multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious police departments that need to be under strict civilian control. And they need the support of civilians, especially in this new age of fascism and right-wing authoritarianism that we're moving into. So let's get rid of the racist cops from whatever extremist group you want who've infiltrated a police department and are violating the civil rights and civil liberties of African-American citizens and others. Let's get rid of them, but let's defend the police departments, just like we should defend the firefighters and the teachers and other public employees who are making democracy possible. Got it. One question that maybe is the last question. One real takeaway from this is that you, you really believe in persisting in causes, even when sort of the cause itself can feel frustrating or quixotic. You don't mention it in the book, but one of my favorite cases you worked on, speaking as someone who lives in Washington, D.C., is when you, you sued to try to get us a voting member of the House of Representatives and two senators back in the 90s. And I really admire that you did that as someone who would have been enfranchised by it. But I also look at that, and I'm kind of astonished that you had the energy to take it on, knowing how long the odds in that case were. And a lot of the problems that you talk about in the book feel a little like that, like very noble causes, but that this feels just impossibly hard. You talk about minority rule in America, and I read about that, and I agree with you, and then I look at the Senate, where they can barely agree to do anything about the Electoral Count Act, let alone do a filibuster carve-out for voting rights. How do you motivate yourself to keep fighting on causes like that, and, and how do you focus yourself and avoid giving into hopelessness? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is while we were talking, I got uh, notice up on the screen that Senator Schumer is calling for a vote to carve out voting rights and democracy. from Breaking the news. So th this should happen within the next <laughs> week or two. So look, you know, when I ran for the state Senate, okay, I was the longest of the long shots. I was the darkest of the dark horses. I was running against a 32-year incumbent who was president pro tem of the Maryland Senate, the boss of our local political machine in Montgomery County, and had introduced a pro-Iraq war resolution, was a big champion of expanding the death penalty, and had been dragging her feet on marriage equality. And I said, this is ridiculous. I think that we live in the progressive heartland here in Silver Spring and Tacoma Park. I'm going to run for the state Senate. And that's when people said, you can't run against the machine. And you know, Tommy would say, well, who's the machine? That's three people. We'll go talk to everybody else, you know, which became my motto. But when I ran in that race, there was an article in our local paper in the Montgomery Journal, which quoted a pundit who said, Raskin's chances of victory are considered impossible. And nine months later, we got 67% of the vote. And there was another article in the Washington Post 
quoting a pundit who said Raskin's victory was inevitable. <laughs> so we went from impossible to inevitable in nine months because the pundits are never wrong. But what I like to tell the young people in my Democracy Summer program is in politics, nothing's impossible. Nothing is inevitable. Everything is just possible through the democratic arts of education and organizing and mobilizing people for change. You know, the, the people of D.C., more than 700,000 taxpaying draftable Americans are the only residents of a capital city on the planet Earth who are not represented in their federal parliament, in their own national Congress. So how long do you think that can last? And, you know, that case, which was decided two to one in the D.C. Circuit in a panel decision, rejected our claim that it violates equal protection and due process to keep denying people in D.C. their rights to representation. But look what's happened since then. That really fueled the movement for statehood, which has now passed the House of Representatives twice. And when Eleanor Holmes Norton brought it up back in 1993, it failed on a two-to-one basis. There was a bare majority of Democrats, but a lot of Democrats voted against it. You know what happened um, this last year and the year before? Every Democrat supported it, except for one, I believe, from Minnesota. Every Democrat supported it. But, of course, we have the problem of the Republican Party, which now considers itself correctly to be the party of the political minority. And they are just trying to hold back the political majority all over the country. I mean, I think that's a pretty pathetic basis for a political party, but it is what it is. We're prepared to confront it and to deal with it. Thank you, Dylan, for reading the book and showing such care in doing so. That means a lot to me. And thank you for your kindnesses about Tommy. I'm glad so many people have gotten to know him through the book. You know, we miss him sharply every single day, but it helps when people get to understand what a magical person he was. Absolutely. No, and it's a, an incredible tribute to him. And before you go, I, my mother-in-law told me to tell you that she's mad every day that she lives in D.C. and you're not her congressman. She was more excited <laughs> that I was interviewing you than anyone else I've ever interviewed. Him. <laughs> well, tell her if she wants to move out to Maryland's beautiful 8th District, I'll show her around. And if not, I tell the people in D.C., as long as you don't have a voting representative, I'll be your voting representative yeah. and work with Eleanor Holmes Norton to get you the statehood in the rights you deserve. Well, and she loves Eleanor. We all love Eleanor. But (laughs) thanks so much for being here, Congressman Raskin. The book, again, is unthinkable. The pleasure was all mine, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.